Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Monday. Hello, this is Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. Welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, and our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. As always, our disclaimer is that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on our years of experience in the coding and billing industry. And of course, we always like to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. So how are you doing? It's summertime, guys. We're, of course, through the month of June. We're into the summer. How is your summer going? I know we've all been so excited. Just get out there, right? And see the world again. Get out of our homes. Get out of our pajamas, right? And put on some real clothes and get out and, and do something fun. So my husband and I did that. We were so excited to finally get out. We we're fully vaccinated. We decided let's do our official road trip that we do every year. We haven't been on a road trip since 2019 when we went to New York, so we're excited to go see something new. And of course, my husband isn't the hugest fan of the beach, but of course, I being from Southern California, it's in my blood, so I had to have my beach time. So our friends in Georgia, we met them down in Savannah, spent a couple days there, and then we jumped on over to Florida and Jacksonville, Neptune Beach, and we had a wonderful time. I'm telling you what, there is no greater therapy than getting your feet into the ocean, into that sand, uh, and just hearing the waves crash. I mean, it's the most amazing, uh, amazing sound, and it's just such therapy for us. And so if you can get out there and do something that's going to give you some much-needed therapy out in the world, I highly recommend it. So whatever you're going to do this year with your families or road trips or flying wherever you're going, please be safe. And of course, please still follow the CDC's guidelines wherever you decide to uh, take your vacation. Well, we're in season three, and this is episode three. Today, we're going to talk about evaluation and management six-month checkup. So we're very excited to, of course, get into the guidelines kind of review, right? We were six months in, we've had a lot of things happen over the last six months. Maybe last year we were a little nervous, right, about how this is going to all work. Uh, We've done some training maybe with our providers and maybe some outside sources have come in and provided us with training. There's a lot of consultants out there, a lot of resources uh, with so much information. So I feel like we've been kind of overloaded with 2021, right? But We still get requests all the time. I get requests constantly uh, from my members and from my students to kind of go over again some of these things so we can keep it fresh in our mind. And no matter what happens with evaluation and management, when it comes to the 2023 updates that we've seen come out, how they're going to continue to evaluate and change the codes to make sure that we're, of course, going with the most uh, valid information, the best way to report these services. And of course, we know our physicians, you know, they have a lot of questions because anytime there's a big change like this, it affects them for the most part, right? They are seeing the patient, they're the documentarians, they need to know um, how they're supposed to interpret these things. So we want to help them, help them be successful, 
So what we want to kind of do today is kind of review. Maybe you were attending uh, HealthCon in March in Dallas. I was there, of course, as a speaker, but I really enjoyed all of the speakers that talked about the 2021 guidelines. And of course, we had in March those official revisions uh, to the wording, some of the terms that we needed to interpret in a different way than we were used to. So I've picked out today just a couple things that we want to continue to uh, work on uh, in this next six months and continue to evolve, right, in our understanding. And so, for instance, on that risk table, when they talk about the surgery, minor, major, elective, emergency, they're talking about the patient's risk, aren't they? Historically, we might have interpreted that as, you know, what we know from a global standpoint as billers and coders, we have to understand minor and major when it comes to the global package. That global package tells us that from a minor procedure standpoint, we have zero or 10 days to work with. And then from a major standpoint, we have 90 days. Now, from a risk standpoint, though, we're thinking about the physician his documentation, his evaluation and management of that patient. So what he is concerned with, he or she, is the risk to have or not to have a procedure. And so we want to focus in on the definition as it's interpreted for evaluation and management, not for the billing standpoint, not for the actual billing of the surgery, right? So we're working on this. Now, the minor procedure, of course, and the major procedures, according to the AMA guideline revision, it does really hone in that this is based on the common meaning of the terms that is used by trained clinicians. Remember, they're the ones who are actually seeing, managing that patient. So what they understand as a risk when it comes to minor or major is defined by them and those clinical standards, not by the global package. I know all of you who've listened to me in the past and have taken my webinars, you know I like to get down to the meaning of words and do my research. And I was always a big proponent of research as a new coder myself because a lot of times I was just kind of thrown in there and sink or swim with a lot of this. And I had to learn on my own um, how to interpret things, how to look up words and definitions. And and once I learned all those things, it, it made it come alive to me. It made it seem so much more understandable and I really got it. And so what I like to do is when I think about a guideline that I have to understand, I have to stop and think, okay, this word here, what does it mean? And I'm looking at this, how does this relate to this? And so when they, of course, admonished us to think about things from a provider standpoint, the first thing I wanted to do is get out there and I wanted to find the official definition from reputable resources, from those clinical, uh, you know, resources, Uh, those places that actually do clinical and medical research and have the right information for us. So I looked uh, at some of the definitions here. And so a minor surgery is really any invasive operation in which only skin or mucous membranes and connective tissue is resected. Give you examples of a vascular cut down for a catheter placement, implanting pumps in the subcutaneous tissue, It also includes biopsies, uh, maybe an invasive operative procedure for uh, tissue samples, maybe a needle or trocar. This is really great examples. And this makes so much more sense to us, right? And even from a global standpoint, there are a lot of minor procedures that do fall into this category. Things that are biopsy related or you're not really um, opening the patient up too much, right? There's not a huge risk for infection or major complications because it's just a minor procedure, right? 
Now let's talk about the major procedure. A lot more information there. It still is considered an invasive operated procedure, uh, but it's more extensive, right? So they're going to be doing more of an extensive resection. Um, a body cavity is going to be entered. Organs may be removed. Uh, the normal anatomy of the patient is going to be altered. For surgical procedures that don't clearly fall into those categories, it may be, you know, more significant chance for contamination, uh, but mostly it's because of the major complications that they're going to experience. Uh, a procedure that was previously maybe uh, thought of as minor will be changed to major if contamination is going to be a significant problem. So they're looking at those types of things. They're looking at what are the major complications of this procedure? What is the risk to the patient? This classifies it as more of a major procedure because the risk to the patient, that particular patient, is different than maybe somebody else. So they're looking at those major surgical procedures that are definitely going to be a risk to the patient. Their survival of that surgery is going to be, uh, you know, looked at and they want to look at all of those things. They have to know the risk to that patient. Another item that is on that uh, table, of course, is that drug therapy required intensive monitoring for toxicity. So according to that official definition, right, it is that drug. It requires that monitoring. The agent that is, of course, injected or the agent that they are taking, whether it's course by mouth, a medicine they're taking, or if it's a drug therapy that's injected to them for therapeutic reasons, it has to be monitored because of the adverse effects that it could give to the patient, right? Um, this can be long-term or short-term, as we know we have ICD-10 codes for that, right? And so because of that, they, of course, are going to put that at a higher level of risk, which is why it's in the high level, right? You're looking at examples like the use of an antineoplastic agent. Uh, you're looking at things like Coumadin that require that monitoring of their blood levels to see how it's responding or how it's affecting them, right? And there is a list out there. I know the um, the Mac Carrier uh, First Coast, they have a great uh, reference on their website for some of the drugs that are considered uh, these type but again, we're going back to the definition. What is the definition of this type of um, treatment or this type of monitoring? What are they looking for? Think about it in those terms. Then let's back up. Let's go back up to our moderate level, right? So in our moderate level table, it does tell us that an example of moderate risk is prescription drug management. So according to an official, of course, guidance from the First Coast Mac Carrier, there was a question, and I like their, of course, answer to it. So the question was, during that E&M, what constitutes prescription drug management? Because remember, back in the day, it was always on that risk table. It was one of the options, and it's still there, right? But we need to understand the documentation that we need, right? So we can't just say current medications, uh, that is, enlist those, right? That's not prescription drug management. It's based on that documentation that they, of course, are prescribing something. Um, it's going to be either written or discontinued. There's going to be some kind of documentation of how they're managing that uh, medication. Now, prescription drug management is different than the drug therapy requiring monitoring because for a lot of things they prescribe that they're managing, they're not necessarily going to be requiring a, a lab test or something to monitor the toxic levels in their blood or their system. So an example of uh, monitoring that doesn't qualify 
um, includes monitoring glucose levels during insulin therapy as the reason for that effect. It doesn't require um, the frequency uh, that it would for, uh, let's say, you know, Coumadin. It's time for another ICD 10 CM break with Jennifer. Well, I'm back for another ICD 10 coding tip. Let's talk SDOH. Today, we're going to talk about the social determinants of health. So, as we know, this affects ENM, which we talked about today, and ICD 10 because it is part of that official uh, risk table for moderate level. It's there, guys. It's an option. It's also been revised as wording in our ICD-10-CM guidelines for 2021. So when you talk to a patient, are you discussing the SDOH, those social determinants of health? It's the first step to helping you address those social risks that they have. It's part of the risk table. It's part of risk adjustment. It's an important thing that we need to talk about our patients. So now they can self-identify. They can actually tell us in that assessment when we're talking to them, they're having problems. They are, of course, maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're having problems affording their medications. If they can't afford medications, they, of course, can't get better. And that's going to affect their risk, right? They're going to need more resources. And that's important for risk adjustment coders and for all coders. Even if we're not in risk adjustment, we still have to report what we see as documented. And when we do that, it helps the risk auditors with their job as well. So let's talk about that. On the risk table, it's an option. That's level four. That's a great reimbursement opportunity, especially if you're struggling with trying to get your level because you have something and the moderate uh, problems, the complexity of problems, but then you're like, okay, I don't have any data. What do I do? I've got my risk table now. Uh, Social determinants of health is an option. So how can I find that information? By always asking those questions to your patient, really investigating what social factors are affecting their health, it really helps you to identify those areas. So yeah, they're not always going to be there, right? We're always going to have patients that don't have... We're not always going to have patients that have those issues. But when they do, we want to identify them and document them, right? So as we know, it's identified for us in our coding manual, we have Z55, There, that's education. We have Z56, employment. Z59, those are social factors related to housing and economics. Their social environment, Z60. Z61, life events. Z62, upbringing. Z63, family and social support issues. Z64, psychosocial circumstances. Z65, experiences with crime, violence, and judicial systems. How many of us have never thought of using these Z codes? They've been there all along in our books to report for these additional reporting issues that people have, of course, conditions they have that affect their health. If a patient has family and social support issues, that's going to affect their health, isn't it? If they're a victim of crime or violence, obviously that is going to be affecting their health. Uh, If they have problems in their social environment, let's look at some of examples of these. Let's break these down. Now more than ever, we are seeing problems related to social environments, especially with the pandemic, things going on, um, you know, there's racism, all kinds of things going on. So look at some of the examples. Problems to adjustment to life cycle transition. Maybe you're uh, someone who has empty nest syndrome. That's that's actually a diagnosis. Are you having problems uh, with social exclusion and rejection? This can happen because of your physical appearance, an illness, behavior, all of these things affect people's health. Target of perceived adverse discrimination and persecution. That can affect people, especially nowadays. There's so much going on. People feel like they're rejected, discriminated against. That is being able to be reported on. 
And those are things that we can report if the patient self-identifies those. You ask your patient, how are you doing? How are, how are things at home? What are you dealing with? How have you been affected by the pandemic? Ask those questions, right? Those are things that we need to ask our patients. So what's another example? Let's look at Z63. This is problems related to support groups, including family circumstances. So are you having problems with your spouse or partner? In the inclusion notes, it tells us relationship distress with spouse or partner. That can affect your mental health. It can affect your emotional health. And when you're stressed out, it affects other things, right? Stress is a killer. We understand that. If you heard my podcast recently last season, of course, you, I talked about stress and how it can affect our health. It's so true. And stress in your relationship, stress in the family can really affect your health. Absence of your family member due to military deployment. That has really uh, created a lot of problems for families emotionally um, and mentally. So that is, of course, you can self-identify those things. Disappearance and death of a family member. Assume death bereavement. So if you think someone has passed away or there's been a disaster or there's been some kind of pandemic, right, and you don't know if they're alive or dead because you haven't heard from them, that can really affect your health. Uh, Bereavement, of course, you've lost someone close to you. People who are grieving, they experience a range of emotions, a range of health issues. Stress on the family due to return or family member from military deployment. That can also create emotional problems, right? I mean, it's great. They're home, but they maybe have experienced some things in in their um, deployment that have affected them. Um, There's other stressful situations. You know, maybe there's um, an ill or disturbed family member, someone who's ill in the family that can affect everyone. So many things, right? I'm just giving you, just scratching the surface here. So look at those code selections, those categories for ICD-10, SDOH, social determinants of health, and get your providers educated. They may already be doing this, but let's help them see there's so much more they could be asking the patient. If you notice things that are documented, maybe there's further clarification you can get so you can get a more clear determination of what code to use. So use those resources at your disposal. Learn more about the SDOH codes and how they can help your provider capture a higher level. So this has been Jennifer McNamara with our coding tip of the day. So hopefully that kind of clear clarifies and clears up that question that many have had on those two. But there's always, you know, an opportunity to, of course, do more research and dig into your particular medication. If you're not quite sure about that, you can query your provider too if you want to learn more about those medications. And I highly recommend taking a, a class on pharmacology uh, if you have the opportunity and have that desire it's a great opportunity. And um, our instructor, Angel Kendall at Ozark Coding Alliance, she, of course, um, is promoting that as one of the courses that we're going to be offering here at Ozark Coding Alliance. A great way for you to dig in and, and learn more about how disease and drugs interact, especially for the risk adjustment uh, curriculum. It is, of course, part of that curriculum when we're, of course, abstracting um, for those things, the risks to the patient and uh, the risk that they have uh, for the insurance companies that they're concerned about. So those are things that we wanna look at. Now we come to the dreaded data section. I'm gonna kinda go back uh, and forth here today because I wanna go into the main areas that we wanna check our understanding of in 2021. We're here at our six month checkup, right? So let's talk about the data section. Now, as we compare the data section in 2021 to what we currently use for other services outside of the 99202-15, we're still using those risk tables and and data tables that we had uh, for those original audit sheets that we used, right? 
So it was about points. It was about how many labs or how many x-rays, medicine section codes and interpretation that was independent and things like that. So let's kind of start and just kind of go down the list here. So obviously, if it's a 99202 or 12, we don't need to have anything, maybe minimal data that's not going to meet the requirements of a level three or none at all. So that's really what we're looking at. And then when we come down to the level three, it's called limited, right? But we have clear instructions, don't we? It clearly tells us that of these categories, if we're going to use the low level, the level threes, we have two categories, either category one, which we're going to have to, of course, have two of the following combined, or we can choose by maybe we had an independent historian come in and give us some information uh, about the patient's history. Remember, by our definition, so if you're struggling when you're going into this section and you think, okay, I'm going to stop now, I'm going to go back up to my definitions and I want to refresh my mind here, what is an independent historian? So we look at the definition, it is somebody who is providing a history when the patient cannot, right? It's not an interpreter situation because an interpreter is really just restating, right, what the patient history is because they can't converse. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, a language barrier, of course, but they're just restating what they, they're actually experiencing. It's not because the patient can't express it. It's just their language barrier is there, right? So for patients who can't express it, maybe they've had a stroke or some other limitation to their health, preventing them from giving a history, that independent historian is going to do that for them, right? could be a family member or someone else who is with them to provide that. When it comes to the tests and categories of category one, we need to understand those three. What is a review of a prior external note from each unique source? Well, to understand that, you'll notice that asterisk there. What is a unique source? That's the first thing we want to identify, right? And of course, that is defined as a physician or QHP, Qualified Healthcare Professional, in a distinct group or different specialty or subspecialty or unique entity. So when it comes to looking at those types of things, when it comes to reading those definitions, we understand how that works, don't we? We understand that a unique source is someone that is unique to that practice, not part of it. And so that's an option, right? They can review in a note. Patient brings in a note, a record, they're going to review that. Uh, they're also going to look at the review of results of each unique test. Now, a unique test, of course, is defined as something that is identified by a single CPT code. We think of labs, for instance. When I think of lab work, I'm looking at, you know, the panels, right? Because the panels have several tests in them, but it's not identified by several CPT codes. It's identified by one CPT code. That's a good example of a unique test. No matter how many tests are a part of it, we only count it once because it is a unique CPT code. Then we come to the order. Now, this is, of course, ordering of a unique test, right? And so this, of course, is uh, the order. The physician sees the patient. They look at their information. uh, They look at their exam, their history. They take that into account, right? Remember, we don't use it for leveling, but we take that information as a provider and we use it to provide our medical decision making. And so when they order a test, a unique test again, uh, they are going to be, of course, eventually what? They're going to eventually have to review the results with the patient. And think about that. Think about the fact that have you ever been to the doctor and have you had an MRI ordered, but you don't necessarily all the time go back every time to have that read in the office or reviewed with you. 
I print one, you know, when I had a, a opportunity to have my MRI or my results given to me, I preferred a phone call. I didn't want to make another trip into the office to do so. So in that case, it's not a face-to-face visit, just a phone call. That wouldn't count, right? So why would we expect that to be the case with E&M evaluation management guidelines? They expect as a physician or qualified healthcare professional that you're going to follow through with that and you're going to give the results to your patient regardless of where it happens. So they're not going to let you, as we say, double dip, right? And get the review of a test you already ordered. Not going to happen. Doesn't make any sense. And you know, you're already getting paid in the order and they expect you're going to follow through with that particular order and you're going to review it with the patient makes a lot of sense to me anyway. So if we can explain it to our providers that way, from a standpoint of they understand, from a medical standpoint, it's medically necessary for them to explain to the patient the results, regardless of where it happens, when it happens, right? So when we then we go back down into and we talk about our order and our review. What are things that we can count in a review, right? So this is things like, okay, the patient had an order of something, they're bringing us the results of something, we're reviewing it. And we didn't order it, it was brought in from an outside place, right? We're going to review those results, we can count that as a review. Maybe we have one test that was brought to us as a review, maybe another one that we decide we're going to order ourselves. So there we have an order, we have a review. And we have two there, right? Or maybe it's another test, maybe there's two separate x rays we are going to order or two x-rays we're gonna order and a lab test that they brought in that we're gonna review. All of those things we have to combine, right, into that data element. So now let's move along to category, uh, the moderate category, and look at the moderate data elements. It changes a little bit now, right? We have one out of the three. So we have three categories now. And category one is the same, of course, although we need two, we need three of the three now, a combination of three of the following. There are four options. Um, the fourth option, of course, still includes that independent historian. Now for category two, we have now moved into a new section of independent interpretation. So previously with the three, the actual category number two was the independent historian, which now has been bundled into category one for level four. As you're following along your table, I hope you're following along with me as I'm talking because if you're not following me, you're going to get lost. So we've talked about level three, the independent historian is category two, but now with level four, they've put that category as part of category one, as you can see. It's the fourth element there. There's three options uh, you need. And so same, uh, same applies. If you're going to use an independent historian, that's one. If you're going to do results of one test, review of another, different tests, you combine any order you want, any combination, as long as it's a combined three, right? Category two, independent interpretation. Let's get back down to that definition because this was on our original table that we use now for 95, 97. It's still there. The definition hasn't changed. It still requires you perform an independent interpretation of a test that someone else brought to you, right? You're not going to also report it on your claim, right? Someone brought you a result of something and you're going to provide your own interpretation. It's not going to be something that you are going to report. You're going to bill on a claim that can't happen because if that's happening, you're getting paid in the actual CPT code that you're billing on the claim. So you don't get to double dip there either. You don't get to count it in the uh, E&M section 
you have to decide, okay, is this something I'm billing for? Or am I just really looking at this test they brought to me? And am I going to document what I see, what I interpret this result to be? And physicians do that. And so watch for those things that they're going to say. So let's think about it. We think about an independent interpretation They are reviewing, let's say, a mammogram, for instance. They're comparing it to the mammogram from a previous year. They did not bill for that interpretation of either image. They're just reviewing it. They they have to compare them, right? I work for a breast surgeon, so he often does this. And he's going to interpret what he sees and document. But he didn't, he's not getting paid for it in the in the one from last year or the one from this year. He's just providing his own independent interpretation of that result. It's important to document because it affects the patient's care, right? An orthopedic physician is going to review an MRI, and he's going to interpret what was billed by a radiologist, for instance. It's a test he didn't order, he didn't bill for, and he's just interpreting what he sees, and it's part of that chart, it's part of that recommendation he's going to make for that patient. That is important, right? They do need to note their interpretation, so it can't just be, I interpreted this, you know, my own way or however they want to say it. There's different ways that we know physicians will say things, uh, but it has to be their specific interpretation, what they're seeing, what they look at, and what it, how they interpret that to be uh, for the recommendation they're going to give, right? So hopefully that kind of explains things a little bit. We we understand how to combine the, the elements for category one. Just Think about it that way. It doesn't matter how many you're doing, just combine three of them. That's all you got to do, right? And uh, for category three, that is discussion of management of tests, you know, with an outside source, external physician, someone, again, who's not uh, part of your practice, same specialty. And of course, it's not something that you're going to report yourself. So it's, again, not separately reported. They mean you're not going to bill that test on a claim form, right? That's not going to be reported. So here we are, moderate. We have to have one of the three categories, as it mentions there in the parentheses. So we have to have one of those three categories in order to get moderate level. So if they're doing their own interpretation of an MRI or a mammogram, we got it, guys. We got it in category two. Have you heard? Now the CCS exam is available without restrictions. Now is a great time to jumpstart your coding career with one of the most popular certifications in the country. The majority of employers require a CCS credential, and at Ozark Coding Alliance, we're here to help you achieve this goal. Join our workshop this July for only $129 and earn five CEUs. You can register at ccscoder.com. If we're going to have to uh, discuss the test interpretation with another outside source, like the physician maybe who referred them, we have it in category three. A lot of time for a lot of different types of specialties, this is possible. We just have to really inter- read that documentation and of course apply it where it goes. We're not here, we're here to help the v- providers, right? Get the better level, but sometimes it's just not there, right? We have to explain to our physicians, uh, we don't wanna pad our notes. We wanna really document what you're really doing. And the documentation will speak and will apply the codes to it. We don't want to get too involved in, yes, revenue is important, but it's not going to change the patient's medical necessity. It's not going to change what they truly need from a medical standpoint. So let's get back to medical necessity. The reason that these guidelines were created in the first place, because, you know, over padding of notes, billing for higher levels than is really medically necessary is the reason that they went and evaluated this in the first place. All of those audits over the years that were 
obtained, where we see so many high levels performed for things that are not medically necessary for that specialty. That physician is a certain specialist, and he's examining all these body systems, and he is, of course, doing all of these things, and we're not going to get to count all that. What is the reason that he is going to need to examine all of those body systems? There's no reason, right? So we want to get down to the medical necessity. We're not focused on the exam or the history. Even though we use them to um, look at some other areas, the leveling comes from the medical decision that that provider made, right? So let's move along into category five, level five. It's called extensive, right? And why is that? Because more data is required. So in this one, in the parentheses, it, you'll notice it says that they have to meet two of the three categories. So we have three categories again. It's, of course, the same categories that we had for level four. Uh, but again, we have to have two categories now. So if we're discussing um, the management of a test with a provider, and we're also doing our own independent interpretation, both of things that we are not separately reporting on a claim form, that's great, right? And then category one, can we get three a combination of three of those and one more category. Now, a lot of times with level five, uh, we find it is difficult for majority of providers, unless they have to, of course, request several tests, right? Most of the time, it's really difficult to get data in level five. So what we're left with, if you want to level five, is we really have to look at the uh, diagnosis, that problem, and the risk if they're going to be doing something for the patient. Let's look at those items, right? Now, for me, like for a breast surgeon, I'm looking at conditions. The patient has a malignant neoplasm, a life-threatening condition. That's a, a chronic illness that poses a threat to their life or bodily function. Or maybe it's a condition that is chronic, but there's a severe exacerbation. Like if they don't have treatment or something, it's going to be very, very life-threatening for them. They're having a severe side effect. And the word severe is key. Let's ask our providers to give us those words. Give us those terms. Show them the table and help them. You know, we need to see severe or we need some actual documentation that correlates to the word severe. What makes it severe? And until you're comfortable with that, maybe you're new to coding, it may require you to query your provider over and over again, maybe to ask them, do you consider this severe? Because you're not a physician. You have to try to interpret that documentation and apply it to the table, apply it to those audit sheets, those definitions that we've been given. And until you're seasoned and comfortable until you understand what severe means for your specialty or for that disease, it's going to take some time. It's going to take work and research on your part. So use your physicians. They want to help. They want to, they love to talk about, uh, you know, clinical standards. They love to talk about things. That's what they do. So use them. So now let's just kind of, we're going back, right? We're going to, we're kind of going the backwards way. We're going now into that first column. Let's talk about those conditions. Now, really, when it comes to those problems addressed, we think about the uh, minimal, very mi minimal self-minor. Uh, patient could really be at home taking care of themselves. It's transient in nature. It's going to run its course. It's not going to really affect the patient. It has to run its course, and there's nothing they can really do it could give you over-the-counter medication, but it's really something that you could have done at home, right? So we think about that. Same, of course, happens with the level three, but now you have to have at least two or more of those problems. That's one option. But we have bullets, right, in level three, um, in all of these levels. So we can choose. It does. We don't have to have a categories, right? We don't have to have certain amount of them. We just have to have one of those options and to get that level. So in the level three, 
either two or more of those self-limited or minor problems, or do they have a stable chronic illness? Remember, a stable chronic illness, a chronic illness, for instance, we have a definition. Something the patient has had for at least a year or is expected to last until they die or, or you know, a long, long time, right? So from a clinical standpoint, we've heard the words acute and chronic when it comes to certain conditions, injuries, and we've always interpreted that, right, for something they've had for a long time or an acute, it's recent, right? Maybe within the last, uh, you know, six weeks or so. So from a clinical standpoint, they've defined this for us. Chronic is something they've had for at least a year and it is expected to continue for the rest of their life. Things like diabetes, chronic kidney disease, um, you know, congestive heart failure. These are chronic conditions. So if you're not understanding if your condition you're coding for is a chronic condition, what do we do? We look it up. We research it. Query our physician. Get out there and look up those inf- the information on that disease. Get to know it. Now, as a coding professional, maybe you're getting into a new specialty and you have to research that like we've always done. When I was new in coding, I was always admonished. If you don't, if you're not strong in medical terminology, anatomy, pathophysiology, you're going to really be hurting because a lot of what we do as coders relies on our understanding of disease process. Do we understand these things? And this is going to come with time. New coders are not going to automatically know these things. It takes that time, that research to understand. The more you're with that specialty, the better you're going to be at it. I remember when I first started orthopedics, I really wasn't comfortable with all the bones and joints and the ligaments and tendons and all those things, the the disease process of osteoporosis and different things. So I learned all that. When I went into GI and gastroenterology, I had to learn about Crohn's disease. I had to learn about the definitions of things that have with bleeding or without bleeding, when there's an obstruction, without an obstruction, how that affects the patient. All of those things I had to learn over time. So, you know, learn those things, take the time to research them. So one stable chronic illness, diabetes, for instance, an acute uncomplicated illness or injury. So let's ask ourselves, what makes it complicated or uncomplicated because as we see in level four, we have the option of a, um, of course, an uncomplicated injury, excuse me, a complicated injury that's acute. So how do we know if it's four or three, level three or level four? We have to know if it's an injury that is complicated or uncomplicated. Now we'll look at our definitions, of course, we're always gonna go back to those. Let's start there. So what is an acute uncomplicated injury? So again, it's a recent short-term problem. There's a low risk of morbidity because they've had this injury or illness. Remember it's or, so it's not, we don't wanna always go to injury. It can also be an illness. Um, but there is, of course, um, it's you know gonna be a prescribed course for them. Examples like cystitis, a simple sprain. So it's an injury, right? It's acute, it recently happened. Uh, but of course it's uncomplicated because the, there's no opening of the wound. There's not a wound, right? There's not an opening of the skin. Um, it's not going to need operative help, right? Operative intervention at this point in time. It's gonna heal naturally, but it is an injury. It, it's uncomplicated, it's acute. All of the definitions have been met with that example, right? Let's move along to the acute complicated injury. So according to the definition, it's an injury that requires treatment for evaluation of body systems that are not directly part of the injured organ. The injury is extensive or the treatment options are multiple and associated with the risk of morbidity. So without them getting treatment, they could have a risk for morbidity. And so an example uh, could be a head injury 
brief loss of consciousness. Um, they could have injured multiple body parts, right? It's complicated. Um, they've had a head injury. Other parts of the body, other organs, other systems have been affected now. So it's complicated. There's a lot they have to evaluate, right? So think about it in those terms. And another word, we love words here at Ozark Coding Alliance. When I teach, I love to talk about words. I'm sorry if I bore you with words, but I love defining words because it helps me process what I'm doing. So we've heard the word morbidity a lot, right? So what is that? It's a state of illness or functional impairment that's going to be of substantial duration. They're going to have limited function. Quality of life is impaired. There's an organ damage that may not be transient despite treatment. So Read the definition. When you need to understand, okay, they say a risk of morbidity, what is morbidity? Go to the definition and put all of those things together. So their risk of life quality being impaired, their risk of severe or long-term organ damage is there. All of these things, their function is limited. That's their morbidity. That's what's going to affect them, right? So let's think about that. And one of my favorite options I like to use for myself and my clinic with uh, biopsies and other tests that our doctors perform, you know, is the undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis. Because that happens a lot, right? I'm in GI. We do a lot of biopsies, a lot of uh, tests where they have to send things off to pathology. So that is an undiagnosed new problem. They have biopsied a lesion or a mass, and they don't know what it is. At that point in time, if we're billing on the claim, we have to get our claim out. We have to build a symptom, right? A mass, a lesion. But when we send it off to pathology, we, we wait for that to come back, which is what we should do as coders, right? We get that pathology back and it says it's malignant or a benign tumor of some kind. At that point in time, yes, we have a certain prognosis. We know the problem. But when we saw them, we evaluated them initially, we ordered that procedure, that minor procedure, we didn't know. And so at this point in time, we can get moderate with the problems. We look at the moderate risk, we can grab that minor procedure with uh, identified risk factors. So maybe a colonoscopy, we're going to tell the, we're going to document that the patient has a risk because they have these conditions. And maybe it's, we're looking at that, but they don't identify the risks. And if that's not the case, what do we do? So when we look at the example on the sheet here, it says that for the risk, there's an option for decision regarding minor surgery. Remember, we talked about the definition of that. A biopsy would be considered something that was minor from a clinical standpoint with identified risks. And we're not talking about normal risks. There's risk to every surgery, right? Every procedure has a risk, no matter what we're doing. Every medication we take has a risk, right? But we're talking about identified risks because there are identified for that patient. This patient has this condition. They have hypertension. Um, they maybe are using alcohol regularly. They're alcoholic. Maybe they um, have another condition that makes it more of a higher risk for them or a moderate risk for them. We're going to identify the risks that they have. They're having a minor procedure. We've identified the risks. That's moderate, right? But if we don't identify the risks, we don't have an option for that, do we? So we have to go back, right, to our level three. Simple as that. If we don't have the amount of tests we need, plus our undiagnosed new problem, and we can't get anything with prescription drug management or a procedure, we're going back, right? We haven't met two of the three, which is our requirement for a certain level. So think about in those terms. I love, you know, all those different audit tables that are out there, but for me, I'm old school. I like to print out my table, um, I print out my official guidelines, um, and I get them laminated, I get my dry erase marker, 
And that's what I'm doing for 2021. I'm getting that marker out, that highlighter, and I'm highlighting uh, which part I have. First, I start with my diagnosis, my problem. Where do I fall? Do I have any data to report? Where is it at? I'm going to circle it. I'm going to go to my risk. Where is my risk? Are we doing a procedure? Do I have prescription drug management? Is it over-the-counter medication? Is it physical therapy? Where can I put it? Remember, even though medical decision-making for the 2021 in the low section, we don't have any examples, all of these are really just examples, aren't they? So when we go back to our original uh, table for 95, 97, we see actual examples that can help us, right? But again, query your provider. If it doesn't fall in that moderate level risk and you think, okay, it's probably going to be in the low risk, but let me do some investigation. Query your provider. Use those original examples that are still valid that still explain what a low risk is. Uh, We can do that. So for this example, I'm going to say my patient, when doing a biopsy, we're doing an EGD biopsy, my provider, I'm going to circle my new problem uh, with uncertain prognosis. And then I'm going to go to my risk and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to order a colonoscopy. Um, uh, They have this problem. I'm sorry, I'm going to do a biopsy, excuse me. Uh, And so I'm going to order a biopsy and I'm going to uh, identify the risk the patient has. They have diabetes, they have hypertension. These are all things that could put them at higher risk for having a procedure. And for a lot of patients, you know, if they're having a procedure, sometimes they send them for clearance, usually for major surgeries. Uh, But they, they do that for that reason, right? They have to identify the risks. So they have documented the patient wants to still go ahead with it, but they know the risk involved and they understand that they have a risk because of the conditions that they have. So let me go back to that. Our new problem with uncertain prognosis, I'm going to do um, maybe a mass. I'm going to do a biopsy for that reason. Sometimes, like going back to my colonoscopy example, a patient may have abdominal pain or they may have, um, you know, constipation. This is I'm thinking outside the box here because I'm thinking about colonoscopies. I go these every day. What do I see in those reports? I see a, a doctor, he's ordering a colonoscopy because they have a specific location in their abdomen or they have rectal bleeding. Something is clinically indicated for having that. It's undiagnosed. That's It's a problem they have, but they don't know why. They don't know why that's happening or what's going on. So they have to do that colonoscopy. And they're going to do that. That's a minor procedure. While they're in there, they get in there, they decide they see a polyp, right? Here's the culprit, right? Maybe causing this. They're going to remove the polyp. Then we have the path report. It's going to tell us the problem. So we have our undiagnosed new problem. We have our minor procedure. We have a level four. Simple as that, right? Now, there are going to be some more complex situations that we're going to have to really dig in and do our research. And here at Ozark Coding Alliance, we are really dedicated to helping our members, helping our network out there understand medical decision making even more. So we have, of course, our orthopedic specialty webinar that is out available on our webinars um, in our website, ozarkcoding.com. And then, of course, if you would like uh, to get more specialties out there, let us know what specialties are you interested in learning more about when it comes to evaluation and management. You have a specialty you're working in and you're struggling with a certain area. We have our general surgery uh, information about that. We have our uh, ENT that's coming out this year. We have other examples, uh, other uh, specialties. We're going to be doing gastroenterology soon. So we're going to be bringing out more specialties this year, more webinars to help you understand those specific areas that you need uh, for those body systems. 
to really help us in the main areas that we see. And cardiovascular, oh goodness, that's a hard one, right? It's a lot of information. So we hope you can enjoy our virtual uh, healthcare summit in the fall this year. It's going to be a great event. It's our charity event. It's our second annual. So we decided to bring in our specialty that we've been asked for, which is cardiovascular. So please join us. We hope you can join us for that event, that healthcare summit. Please go to www.ozarksummit2021.com and join us. Tell your physicians, tell your providers. We want them to attend as well. There's so much information they can have and it's on demand. They can listen to it whenever. They can, of course, have it in their car if they're traveling. They can listen to it anytime. They don't have to attend physically, but it's there if your practice wants to purchase a ticket. You guys have it all year round, so it's a great option. Plus, your coders will get CEUs. We're offering 18 to 20 CEUs uh, for that event, and we're so excited. We want to give back to our coding community, which is why we do this charity event. It's a charity event for you, you as the coder, and also uh, for those who uh, need CEUs, those who are are learning coding and want a great way to learn um, all aspects of coding and billing. Uh, For those of you in school, it's a great charity event for you as well. We know that your money is tight. You've been in school. You paid all this money for your education, but you need to learn more. And so we want to give you the opportunity. We have some physician speakers this year. We're very excited to have Hale Headley. He's a physician that's going to be talking with me about spine coding. We have a a chiropractor who's coming on. She's going to talk about the spine anatomy for us. Uh, We have a podiatrist coming in to talk to us about podiatry procedures and documentation. A lot of information coming at you. We're so excited. And if you'd like to sponsor our event, we are still looking for some sponsors to uh, be on there for our networking events. If you have a company, a business that is relative to healthcare, and you want to talk about your products or your services, and you want to get that out there to a mass amount of people who are there to learn about healthcare, please contact angel at ozarkcoding.com. So we thank you for listening to episode three today on six-month checkup for evaluation and management. We hope that you have had success and you're, of course, still reaching out to learn more about evaluation management. So let's make it a great additional six months. Let's finish out the year, the next six months, and let's keep learning and keep growing as coders. So we want to thank you for listening today. As our uh, always our goal at the Ozark Coding Alliance uh, podcast series, Life as a Coder, we always desire to educate. And I always say, as you know, knowledge is power. Don't give up on coding. Keep learning and keep growing. This has been Jennifer McNamara with Life as a Coder. Thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fass with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Monday for a new episode. We'll catch you then. Project Resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Be sure to reference this podcast when you place your order.